Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We are in Washington, D.C. today with a master sergeant in the U.S. Air Force, Jennifer Medeiros, who is also a chef. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Uh, and in Orlando, we've got um, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling in the Army for 37 years, uh, commanding U.S. Army in Europe for part of that time, uh, but also an expert on food, fitness, nutrition. General, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, and my sister, Debbie Shore, co-founder of Share Our Strength, uh, also here in our Washington studio. Um, I'm so excited to have this conversation because we've had many conversations, always, almost always, with a chef or somebody in the, the food world and somebody else who's working in the community in one way or the other. And we've talked about the intersections between food and health, food and um, education, but we've never really talked in a really concrete way about the intersection of food and national security. And both of you in different ways are involved in our national security. And I think it's such an important frame for people to understand some of the basic issues around food, nutrition, hunger, obesity, uh, and the connection to so many issues we care about. So we're going to want to get into that, but I, I want to really start by finding out, as we always do, how you came to be uh, doing what you're doing. Um, General, 37 years in the Army, what led you in that direction initially? I'm sure this is a story you've told many times, but I know our folks would love to hear it. Uh, I grew up in a, in a poor family in St. Louis, Missouri, and didn't think I'd be going off to college, and I had a guidance counselor that suggested I try West Point because it was free, and I went off and went to the military academy and had never left the city of St. Louis before I traveled to New York to go to school and and first time on an airplane when I was 18 years old and ever since then I've I've had a wanderlust and enjoyed the military and not only the traveling and the adventure but also being able to serve with with great young people all over the world and that's what got me into the service and I retired uh, I guess about four years ago now uh, I really, really miss the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen and Marines, but uh, sometimes don't miss some of the other stuff that goes along with service life, like moving and deployments and all those kind of things. But it was a, a great life, and my wife and I and our kids really had a chance to travel all over the world. It was a whole bunch of fun. Uh, did you have any idea when you started out that it would be a, a career of 37 years? I had no idea whatsoever. Uh, but truthfully, what, what kept me in and I'm sure Jennifer will say the same thing, is the people. Uh, you get to serve with some of the most quality people in the world, uh, all doing, you know, doing things that are bigger than themselves. They want to contribute and be part of something. Uh, and even the, the guy that's with me here in the studio is a, is a former Navy sailor, and he said the same thing, that it was just a great life of, of serving something as part of something big and contributing to the country. Yeah. Um, General, you also were in combat for three years? A little over three years, yeah, in different times, yeah. Where were you deployed then? Uh, all three times in Iraq. Uh, the first time, Desert Storm, uh, for about seven months, and then the second time in Baghdad with the 1st Armored Division for 15 months, and then the third time commanding 1st Armored Division in northern Iraq for 15 months. So uh, all three of those, and, and a lot of trips to Afghanistan, but no deployments there and a whole bunch of time spent in, in Europe, 12 years spent in Europe. Oh, and, a, and, a, and one tour in South Korea as well. 
Master Sergeant Medeiros, how did you end up being a cook in the Air Force? I um, I was when I first joined, but I was part of a, a dining facility. Um, and so. And how long have you been in the service? I should have asked you that first. 18 years. Yes. Wow. Um, I, I, after maybe about four years, I cross-trained into the dental clinic um, because I wanted to just get out of the kitchen and try something new. And then as time went on, um, I, I was found myself doing retirement ceremonies um, for the, the food portion of it, you know, people's birthdays, whatever people needed for food, I would I would cook it and bring it in. And, and so I had a friend who became an enlisted aide and she said, Jen, you should try this job out. Um, and then listed aid is someone who works in a general officer's home and their, their role is to take care of all of the minute details of at home life. Can I brag on Jennifer a little bit? Because you said she's a chef and she not only performs duty as cook, you know, no one really knows what that means, but she... She not only performs duties for that individual and his family, uh, but she also cooks probably, I would guess, four or five days a week for parties of anywhere from from five to 50. Uh, and those parties include congressmen, visiting dignitaries, presidents of countries, uh, Defense Department officials. So she's got a hectic job. And my hat's off to her being an enlisted aide. Uh, because they do unbelievable work. I've had the chance to have a couple of listed aides in my time, and I know they saw me through some tough times when we were trying to entertain and put the best foot forward for the United States of America with foreign dignitaries. These are obligations that our GOs have. They're not things that they just do because they're GOs and they want to have a party. GOs meaning general General officers. officers. Yes. They don't just throw parties to throw parties. Um, There are obligations that they have as general officers in the military to sit down with other officials from other countries and discuss business. So what we do is we take that arena and we set it up to where there's no stress, there's no distractions, and these two men or women can sit down and discuss whatever it is that they need to discuss. And food brings like nations together. Mm. That's the only thing I think in this world that everyone on this planet has in common is food and food is life. So, you know, I'm glad to be a part of that. Well, let's back up even a little bit farther. Um, how did you end up in the Air Force? Uh, was that something that you'd thought about for a long time and was cooking something? Were there home influences that got you interested in cooking? You were prep, prep cook in high school. I like, where did that, that all start? I think I've always respected the chefs that I worked for in high school. Um, so, and this is I, in Jackson, Mississippi. This actually was in Colorado Springs. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so you're an Air Force family. I'm not. Okay. I'm. I'm the. Um, my dad was a cop. Okay. So um, we moved from Mississippi to Colorado Springs, and uh, he became a sheriff uh, out there. So. Got it. I thought maybe just because of the Air Force Academy, that right? You'd been no. had a history there. Got it. Okay. <laughs> no, but um. I've always I've always had a lot of respect for the chefs that I worked for and with uh, in high school. And food is a big part of, you know, my culture. I'm from Mississippi. That's what we do. We eat and we talk and we hang out on the porch. You'd fit so. right in with us. <laughs> yes, you would. That's and us. then what led you into the military? Uh, the military, I just uh, I needed something bigger than myself. Um, and my dad suggested, hey, what, have you thought about the military? And I said, Actually, no. And he said, let's go talk to, re- to the recruiter. And, and then, you know, before I knew it, I was like, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like to do this. So it was kind of just I followed my gut. And uh, 
I've never looked back since. I've, I'm very thankful, actually, for being in the military for as long as I've I've been able to. So. And knowing now how Jennifer got involved with uh, food um, and issues connected to it, you've also had a connection, uh, particularly as it relates to fitness. You're on the president's. You were appointed by President Obama to the President's Council on Fitness, Sport, and Nutrition. Uh, you've thought a lot about uh, the issues surrounding the health of uh, uh, and the fitness of the recruits that come into the military. How did that become part of your focus? Yeah, that's actually a, a very interesting story. Back in the mid-'80s when I was a young captain, uh, by background, I'm a tanker, uh, not a cook, <laughs> not a nutrition expert or a PE expert. But the Army sometimes takes officers after they've completed their time in uh, – in commanding a company, uh, a tank company, which I did, and they send them off to grad school. Well, they asked me if I'd like to go to to Indiana University and get a degree in physiology and then go back to West Point to teach PE. And that was in the mid-'80s. Fast forward about 20-plus years, uh, after I came out of Iraq the second time, my boss uh, asked me as a three-star general if I'd like to command all the basic training in the Army. And when he asked me to do that, and then I got nominated to take that position, uh, one of the directions I gave, I was given was, hey, we don't know exactly what's wrong, but we have some challenges with our new recruits in a few different areas. One of those areas were uh, centered around, one of the areas centered around excessive injuries and obesity rates of new recruits and a lack of ability to get them fit to pass the PT test in, a, in the 10-week period of time that basic training is. When you enter basic training in the Army, the very first day you're there, you take a three-event test, and we called it the 1-1-1 test. It's one minute of sit-ups, one minute of push-ups, and a one-mile run. And it's just to ascertain your fitness level. Now, that's not the test you take before you leave, but it is to just get a feel for how good you are. And what we've seen over the last 10 years is an increased number of failures on that 1-1-1 test, uh, both men and women. It has gone astronomical. It used to be around 10% of an entering class. It's now somewhere around 40 to 50%. And it just gives an indication that people are not prepared for the kinds of dynamics in a, in a very simple test. I mean, I think I could... In my coat and tie right now, I could do the one minute of push-ups, uh, sit-ups, and, and the mile run in my street shoes and pass that test right now. And yet we were seeing young people, 18-year-olds, who could not pass it. Uh, so it just gives you an indication of, of the kinds of shape many young people are when they enter basic training. So in 2009 we revamped the way we did basic training we instituted a program called the soldier athlete initiative and as part of that we were taking new recruits which had sort of a uh, negative effect over the last 20 years in the civilian society as we've seen our youth grow up with a lot more emphasis on poor nutrition and lack of physical education and a bunch of other factors that were affecting their physical capabilities And we changed our PE program in basic training, but we also changed the way uh, we contributed to their nutrition. And during that 10-week period of time, we attempted to try and turn turn around the way young soldiers ate to get them more nutritious food to affect 
you know, to reduce the obesity levels, but also to build the the soldiers who were more thin and not maybe even undernourished, uh, which was a huge problem uh, that we saw just from the level of the, the type of recruits we were seeing. And I could cite all kinds of figures on that. But we were also seeing a huge injury rate. Uh, and that was directly attributed to the last 20 years or so of a lack of PE in schools, poor nutrition that was causing a lack of bone growth and, and uh, capability of the bone and muscular system. We were seeing a whole lot of stress fractures in bones, a whole lot of broken bones that we had never seen before, uh, lack of ability to pass PT tests, bad dental uh, situations, tooth decay, root canals and young people that shouldn't have been there. Uh, Jennifer will know that, but we categorize uh, soldiers in, a, in different categories of dental readiness for them to deploy. And uh, uh, gr- about 60% of our new recruits were in dental category three and four, which meant they had major dental work to be done as a direct reflection of the kinds of food they were eating and the kinds of drinks they were drinking. Uh, reliance more on carbonated beverages than milk when they were young monster drinks, uh, tobacco, all those kind of things that were affecting their capability to be fit and ready for combat. Jennifer, you're shaking your head. You must have seen some of this as a dental tech. I spent a good year cleaning teeth, and I would get the new the new kids and straight out of tech school. And uh, some of the worst ones were the ones like the general sort of explained was, you know, the class three and four right off the bat, non-deployable. Um, possible, you know, root canals and all kinds of things based off of just their lack of education and just habits that just didn't, were never formed. Um, And we had a lot of work to do with a lot of these, and we still do. A lot of kids come in and their their mouths are riddled with um, what we call caries, which is just, you know, like cavities. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's because of, you know, the energy drinks, the constant sweets. It's the sugar. It's the sugar, but it's also, you know, and some of the kids we would get from like other countries that are just brand new um, and a lot of rice will do the same thing. It'll build a lot of calculus, uh, which is just a plaque buildup, just walls of it. So so when they come in, when you say recruits, I mean, I should know this, but when you say recruits, they're already they've already been accepted into the brand new airmen. Yeah. So. Because, General, you were mentioning uh, kids that were coming in obese, and I was wondering, how how do they even get into the military if they're obese? Well, a, a small percentage were obese, but a much larger percentage were uh, extremely overweight. And uh, we didn't take that many obese uh, civilians to become soldiers, but because of the time, you remember, this was this was during the time when the military was going through the surge in Iraq and Afghanistan, so we really needed... Uh, we needed recruits. And truthfully, uh, 70, the statistics we used when we presented this to some senior officials were 77% of America is not fit enough to join the military. We just can't accept them. So we're relying on 23% of 18 to 26-year-olds to come in, and that reduces your recruiting pool. Uh, So you not only have fewer coming in, but in the Army, because we have a much larger recruiting requirement uh, than a combined Navy, Air Force, and Marines, Uh, we had to take a whole lot more. And we had an average of 10 weeks in basic training to train them. So if they were then leaving basic training, this gives you an indication of the readiness issue, uh, 
uh, when they were leaving basic training, many of them were going to war fighting units deploying right into combat. So they had to be ready to fight. And when they had, as Jennifer said, the, the, the bad teeth, the commanders in the field don't want soldiers arriving in their units that have to spend a whole lot of time in the dentist office. So we were trying to fix their teeth in basic training. Well, when you only have 10 weeks to train and you're spending a whole lot of time fixing teeth and getting people in shape, it really becomes a really difficult task to just get them through that training to get them on to report on to their first unit of assignment. Uh, and General, just to parse one thing that you were speaking of when you said 77% are not fit, that's not all because of weight or obesity. I'm assuming some of it is because of, you know, not not fit to even come into the military. Some of it is because of other deficits or yeah. drug or criminal yeah, histories. I'm, is that correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, we were taking uh, all high school graduates, so that was one gate they had to pass. Another one is no uh, convictions or record of legal issues, felonies or misdemeanors, and then the fitness issues. But truthfully, fitness, uh, ability to, to do the things we asked them to do was the biggest issue that prevented young people from coming into the military. Yeah, and, and to some degree, which I'm sure you know, General, that this was the impetus back in the, uh, I guess, early 60s for the school lunch program really was the military right. recognizing that, you know, our boys weren't fit to serve. Yeah, if you, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. If, if you go even back to World War I, uh, about 25% of our nation wasn't fit enough to come in. In World War II, it was about 50%, and now it's about 75%. And it's the reason why we've instituted things like ROTC. That was primarily a fitness building program after World War I, and why President Eisenhower instituted the President's Council on Fitness after uh, when he took office because he had seen what kind of shape soldiers were in in World War II. So th there are some connections and some synapses that occur because of these things. General, you've, you've had some awesome responsibilities during your career. I don't use the word awesome like, geez, really cool, but I mean awesome like <laughs> incredibly important. Um, but I assume that being uh, responsible for basic training for the entire army that that must have really weighed on you it, it was interesting because during the time we we revamped a lot of things uh like the program of instruction what we were teaching young soldiers for a new type of combat how we were getting them in shape when it's a it's really a a generation of people who weren't in shape and how we taught them the values of a professional force. Uh, that's what makes the military different today than it's ever been before. Those three areas of the skills, the values, and the attributes. And, and yeah, w at the time we were taking about 160,000 new soldiers every year into a bunch of different locations. And it was pretty sporty at times, to be honest with you, but a whole lot of fun because young, young people, when they're when they're volunteering to serve the nation uh, during a time of war uh, are a pretty special group. Um, in, in terms of some of the issues that we've been talking about in terms of health and nutrition, obesity, are things going from your perspective, uh, both General and Master Sergeant, are they going in the right direction or the wrong direction? I asked that because I'd heard one statistic that said by 2030, uh, the number of Americans that would be fit and eligible for military service, if we keep going the way we're going, could be down to 10 percent. But are yeah, things getting cool. better or worse? Well, if if I can share this with you, I mean, one of the reasons I, I was asked to be on the President's Council for Fitness was because Mrs. Obama came down to Fort Jackson when I was still on active duty and she saw some of the things we were doing. 
And uh, it, it, she was an unbelievably charismatic person to engage with. And she kiddingly said to me, hey, you're going to have to help us uh, in, in what we're doing here. And I kiddingly said back, no, thank you, ma'am. I'm going to Europe to command the forces there. But, but what I'll tell you is the Army and the military is taking care of the 1% of the population because we're developing some programs like we did. The name of the program we had for the Army was called Fueling the Soldier. Fueling the Soldier was changing the way we purchased food, prepared food, and served food to the soldiers. But it was also a campaign to educate them on how important it is to eat right, how it contributes to performance. And soldiers want to survive on the battlefield, so they got to be better than their opponent. And we did that purposely to make the point that if you're going to be in a world-class organization and you're going to have to perform like an Olympic athlete on the battlefield, you better fuel yourself for performance, not just eat. That's, that's a hard argument to make with 18-year-olds who want to do nothing but fried food and cheeseburgers and pizzas and think they can live forever. But those aren't performance-enhancing foods. Uh, and when you're, when you're feeding on a scale that we were doing in basic training with almost 30,000 soldiers at any given time a day going through training, it's easy to do things taking, by taking shortcuts. So what we attempted to do in basic was get rid of all the deep fat fryers in all the mess halls, which we did, uh, get rid of a lot of the extra sugary desserts, get rid of the carbonated beverage machines and replace them with flavored water, and that's easy to do in a controlled environment like basic training. Uh, but as soon as the kids leave from there, they go back to the real world and they go back to their other habits. So that returns me to your question, are things getting better? Uh, I think uh, Mrs. Obama's initiative of the fuel up to play 60 and the activities and, and focusing on obesity was really important. And we started to see trend lines beginning to change, uh, but not by that much. So this is a constant fight uh, for the future of our country, and it's related not just to the health of the individual and how he or she eats, it's related to healthcare issues. Uh, because like I said, we were experiencing all sorts of injuries in basic training, and that's a very small percentage of young people. Imagine what it's like in the entire population where you're paying for health insurance and going to the doctors because of massive injuries and, and maladies with the body. It's critically important that we start eating better and focusing on this obesity issue uh, throughout the entire country. I'm not sure we have the impetus to do that yet outside of a very small percentage of the population. So who owns who who should be accountable for leading on that? You're 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 both talking about ways in which you've led within the military, but we've got corporate executives in charge of who run big food companies that have a lot to do with what we eat, the the advertising and the marketing to young people of foods. We've got yeah. political leadership. Uh, sometimes the responsibility for something is so diffuse that nobody's responsible and the situation just kind of keeps yeah, I mean, I'm perpetuating of, it. Like, we're, uh, how do we think about, how do you solve a problem like this? I mean, I'm thinking of the superintendents and the teachers and the principals who, you know, we have the same issue in the schools, right, where the kids need to be fueled if they're going to learn. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question. Well, we, we actually, if I can interject, it, it's multifold. 
because you not only have government, you know, the initial, the easy way to say it is, well, let's let government take care of it. And health and human services should, and centers for disease control should be looking at this problem. Yeah, but big government doesn't solve everything. So then you say, well, what about the communities and the schools like you, you two just said? Well, we tried the program of fueling the future when I went to Europe, this young woman introduced this in all the Department of Defense schools, and it was very popular, and we changed the way we fed in the, in the, in the schools. But that only is a part of it. Uh, I really go back to it's the families, and it's, it's, it's teaching nutrition. It's not just you know feeding and, and the advertising. Hell, on, the, on my way here to the studio, I passed two big signs on the highway. One said, uh, eat like you mean it which I don't really even know what that means. And another one said, we have the meats. And with this huge, yeah, well, I won't say that, but yes, it was. So it's a combination of not only the government, the schools, the manufacturers, the restaurants, and the families, but we have to take responsibility for ourselves as well. First Lady Obama, she tried. Like she tried to inspire that's what she was trying to do. You have to have leaders, I think, within each category. Right. When it, within each category. Um, we put a lot on the schools, I think, just as a, a nation, when we say, oh, the school should be teaching this and the school should be teaching that. Um, when we get new soldiers and airmen in the military, you know, okay, we got to basically take 20 years of bad habits, good habits, whatever, yeah. and we have to build on that. And some of it's... Some of it's, you know, reversible and some of it's not. I believe for myself individually, a lot of my bad habits were reversed, but I had really good supervisors and I had really good drill instructors Mm -hmm. that pulled me aside and said, Jen, this is what you need to eat if you want to run faster, if you want to be in that fitness group. Like if you, for PT, if you want to, if you want to be in the A group instead of the B group, eat this and this tonight instead of pizza. And, you know, because when we're in the dining facilities, we just... We grab whatever is in front of us, and we sit down, we eat it, and then we're out. Um, But it it does, like the general said, it boils down to mom and dad. Um, Educating new parents is a great way to start as well. Mm -hmm. But um, And and like you said, inspiring people. Even as a grown-up, like I I used to compete. And just from that small amount of time, um, I learned a lot about food. I learned a lot about how it affects your body and what you can do. And it's... You know, it's amazing what you can do when you're when you're eating right, running on all cylinders. What were you competing in? Um, it was a uh, like fitness competitions, and and but but what was the most inspiring for me was the fact that ev- there were a lot of people around me that were inspired in general, people that I knew, people that I didn't really know. Um, hey, I heard you. You know, you dropped like thirty pounds. How did you do it? And I I tell them like you just you eat good, like whole normal foods. food. Yeah. yeah, you just you cook it. So teaching people how to cook, you know, you don't you don't get it out of a box. Um, so it's just getting down to the basics. Yeah. You know, good fats, good, you know, veggies and, and you we know, have, We protein. have a program at Share Strength called Cooking Matters, and it's designed to help uh, low-income families understand both how to shop on a fixed budget, but also how to prepare food for their families. That's a problem. And, a lot of people don't know how to cook. And they want to. They people want to. People want to. Right. Right. People think that, you know, some people are lazy. They just want to eat, you know, cheap, bad food. They don't. People right. want to know. It's hard to believe that, that like, numbers are getting worse because there's so much attention in the last 10 years on nutrition and good food and 
you know, Whole Foods and everything that we're learning about nutrition and all these things we're talking about. It just seems like in the last 10 years, it's become a pretty big deal. But yet, for whatever reason, people aren't. Well, and probably, would be, probably I mean, it would be a lot worse if not for all of this I information. Guess. Well, you know, what, what I found is when we did the basic training revamp and we changed all of our dining facilities, I didn't know how hard that was going to be. Uh, you know, it's not only how people cook, and Jennifer knows this, you know, every chef in the military has a, a menu card for how they prepare food. We had to change all the menu cards, and then we had to change how the schools taught the menu cards, and then we had to change billions of dollars of contracting in order to buy lean meat instead of fatty meat, and, you know, get rid of the deep food, the deep fat fryers, retrain the contracting officers that purchased all this, revamped the mess halls to serve the things the right way, get rid of the contracts for the the soda, the soda drinks and put in the water. The, the one thing I, I'll never forget this time because we had, as I mentioned, we had to change some contracts. And one of them, one of the contracts we had was with a soft drink company that had all our machines in the dining facilities and we wanted to, to terminate the contract and start serving bottled water and or not bottled water but flavored water and milk and low-fat milk and things like that and the contract went on for another two or three years so a great mess sergeant one of the guys the dining facility managers the sergeants who are smarter than any officer you want to meet basically I came into one of these dining facilities and I saw all the kids, all the young soldiers going to the water machines as opposed to the soda machines. And I said, Chef, what'd you do? And he said, oh, I, I, I said, we still got to maintain the contract. I said, how'd you get them to drink the water? And he goes, follow me, sir. And he took me over there and right in front of the machine, what he had done was plastered an out of order sign on the, on the soda machines. Now, it wasn't out of order. It still had the soda in it, but you have such a small amount of time to eat your meal. They would go up to the machine, see the out-of-order sign, not even test it, and go to the water machine instead. So that's the way he got around the contract. A little bit nefarious, but it worked, and that's what you depend on good sergeants to do. So it is unbelievably tough. And what I would say, and I'm not bragging on this, I could do this because I was in charge of all basic training. I was controlling it, and it was, like I said, it was a closed environment. We don't have anybody who's in control of these kind of things in the private sector, in the civilian world, and it's hard. When we did the revamp of basic training, the key thing we were focusing on that surprised me, being having a background in exercise physiology, was the number of schools that had eliminated physical education in schools. So right now, today, there are only five states in our union uh, that require some type of physical education from K through 12th grade. Okay, that's, that's a horrific statistics. The other thing that is uh, because of cost and teachers not knowing how to conduct PE classes and lack of time and other courses and scheduling errors and a bunch of things. But the thing that didn't kind of creep up on me until I was into this for about a year was not only had we eliminated PE over the last 20 years, we had also eliminated uh, home ec. And it gets to the point Jennifer made about not knowing how to cook, not knowing how to choose food, depending on going out for meals as opposed to making them in your own house. Uh, the, the whole social environment of, you know, one parent versus two parent. I mean, there are a variety of reasons for it, but the very fact that we don't even train young people how to make their own food anymore is critically important to try and reverse this trend. 
Um, so that, you know, that's, that's one of the things I'd say that it's not only a requirement to get back to activity, but also an education system to, to teach us how to eat and what to eat. I'm really reluctant to bring this conversation to a close because I think it's one of the most important we've ever had on Add Passion and Stir. But one last thing I guess I would ask you each is, uh, you know, for those who are listening and are, are inspired by your commitment, your dedication to service, your dedication to something larger than uh, yourselves, in terms of uh, I'm an average American, I want to get more involved. What's your advice on the on the best place to start? I, I know the military is an option, but as you were saying, General, it's not right for everybody. Just what's the What's the best thing people can do to make a difference and to serve? Well, I would say find a group of friends because you can never do it by yourself and go after something you're passionate about and then don't take no for an answer. If you want to change your community school board or clean up the park around your house or uh, start an after school event for some neighborhoods or, you know, maybe take a look at how people are feeding an area or are changing a, a, a food desert that might be in your community. It has to be more than one person doing it. You have to get a bunch of people together that have similar passions and then just tackle it, whatever those passions happen to be. Uh, Jennifer? I think um, piggybacking on what the general said, I, I think when you go after um, whatever it is that you're passionate about, you should also not necessarily go after something that's easy. Um, and <laughs> and when you go after it with a team, uh, just know that, you know, bite off one piece at a time. And that, that really, I mean, over a year, two, three years span, um, you'd be amazed at what you can accomplish. But I think it boils down to also relationships with people. Um, when you're talking to someone and you're trying to get them to work with you on a, on a project that you're you're trying to, you know, incorporate into your into your community, it's very important that people have genuine face-to-face conversations. Um, Take the time to really connect with people because when you build relationships, just like nations, when they sit down one general in front of another, it's it's important for those two to cultivate a friendship um, and grow trust because when that happens, then when you combine your powers, I mean, there's nothing you can't do. So Sometimes it's just as simple as going down to the facility um, manager and and striking up a conversation with that person and saying, hey, you know, I was really thinking about making this or putting together this garden, you know, up at the top of our our building. Um, What do you think about that? Instead of saying, hey, this is what in like military, we're the worst, where we come, we have this bullets. (laughs) We're like, hey, this is what we want to do. And sometimes it just takes, you know, sitting down and talking to somebody and connecting with them. Uh, on a personal basis before, yep. you know, anything else. Because when you have that, you people work with you a little bit easier. Um, and it, it takes time. It takes patience. But there's a lot that comes out of it. Well, uh, thank you for that advice. More important, uh, thank you for your service to our country, both of you, each in your own way, really powerful and inspiring. Uh, Debbie and I have a challenge for you. Uh, and uh, for you, Chef, in uh, particular. Chef Cycle? Yeah. We've I know. Got, I, I was going to do it. Well, go ahead. All right. Okay, so both of you are fit, right? The general's fit yes. and you're fit. So we have this incredible ride, three days, 100 miles a day well, in California. One in California, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. It's all chefs. It, really? Except for, yes. the, except for this old dog. Oh, uh, there, there's wow. a few old dogs like him, but it's almost all chefs. And Woody, and our we, producer, is going to ride this year. We raised yeah. over $2 million for our No Canary campaign last year. It'll raise $4 it was like million sec- this year. Yeah, and we're on the East Coast and the West Coast, so we'll get you information, but... 
it's do, really do you ride by any chance general what's your how do you stay fit this is a bike yeah, ride. It's a bike ride I ride every morning. You're, you're General, with, you, you, you would love this. It, I mean, I it's not. it's about 300 chefs, and they're all really accomplished chefs. Some of whom are passionate about the intersection of food and fitness. Others who are only just you know starting to get fit for the first time in their lives. But it's 100 miles what a day it for great, three really. days. It's incredibly well supported. Uh, my pitch is always, if I could do it, any, anybody could do it because I'm not in the same shape as the rest of them. But I've ridden for the last three years. And you and chef, you in particular, with all these other chefs, you I think would love us. it. But general, I think people would be yeah. so inspired to have you with us, even if it turned out you could only get away for a day or something. I think it'd be amazing. I just want to really thank you. I, I'm not kidding. I think this is one of the most important conversations we've had here. So, Master Sergeant Jennifer Medeiros. Um, usually, when we have a chef on, they say, "Drop by the restaurant. We'd love you. Would love to feed you." We probably can't just drop by Fort Myers, it's all good. but um, <laughs> but we'll find a way to connect with you again. Um, sure. And General Mark Hurtling, uh, what an incredible, distinguished career and uh, inspirational to so many of us. Thanks for for being with us. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate you having thanks. us. Um, and Debbie Shore, my sister, co-founder at Share Our Strength. That was um, so fun. I learned a lot today. Thank was, you both. It was a great conversation. It was great. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach, get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.